Well, I've entitled today's message, Reformation or Rebellion? You know, sometimes those two can be a little bit tricky to decipher between. Carol was mentioning some things in the news today. There are a lot of groups in society that are trying to reform, reform, reform. But at what point does it become rebellion against the other groups and taking away rights from the other groups and it can become complicated? I know recently, in fact, just this last week on Sunday, I got an email. We had been without power during this last storm for four days. And so being an opportunist, we have always wanted to have a fire in the fireplace. So we thought we will ask. This sounds too dangerous. I was reading over the manual and there's risk of fire. There's risk of carbon monoxide and so on in the home. And and I don't like the idea of risk. And so we're not going to do it. We were hoping that we would be able to reform his thinking. We thought we were successful in reforming his thinking. The question now becomes, how far do you go with your reformation? We should rebel. Let's find another place. Let's do this. Let's do that. At the end of the day, let's take some deep breaths. Why? Well, because we rent. We are not the owner. Therefore, we don't have the ultimate What's the word? Authority? Yeah, that's the word. Do you like that word, by the way? Authority. Are there people that have authority over you? Who do you work for? Who calls the shots? And do those people in authority always call the shots the way you want them to? Or are there times that you say, well, I think it should be done this way. Too bad, I'm in authority. And you have a choice to make, don't you? What are you going to do? Authority. You know, we could talk about police. We could talk about rules. We could talk about parents. We could talk about any number of things. But if you haven't noticed, this idea of authority in society in the last 20, 30 years is eroding. We especially despise authority. The things that people will say about our current president are things that would never have been said. 20, 30, 40 years ago. There was respect for the office, and I suppose you could say it the other way around too. He's not the most articulate, but he is the president. We don't like the authority of law. Police officers used to be your friends. You could ask them for directions and so on and so forth. I'll tell you, there's never a scarier time, in my opinion, to be a police officer than today. People have no regard for authority. We could jump from that to school teachers. Have mercy. It used to be school teachers had some things they could use to help with authority. You know, back in the day, they would just go out and get the switch off of the cherry tree or something. And this is, we had a member in another church say, they actually would bring in a switch. They said, this is my do right. I'm not advocating for spankings in schools. I'm simply saying it's harder and harder today, isn't it, for teachers to have respect and so on in the classroom. But if we look at this idea of authority, if we really boil it down, if we distill things a little bit, we get down to the heart of the great controversy and how the great controversy largely at its core is all about, yes, authority. Who has authority? If we look here at Ezekiel 28, verse 12, you're familiar with these verses. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. 
Now, an anointed cherub, this is talking about Lucifer. And here we have a, a depiction, if you will, of the Ark of the Covenant on top. We have the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, and then the cherubim on either side. Lucifer was one of, he was the, the right-hand man uh, of the cherubim right there in the presence of God, wasn't he? Here's another depiction, if you will, an artist's rendition. And here you have Jesus, but then you have the cherubim. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones in reference to God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till this great mystery of the universe, till iniquity was found in you. Little by little, Lucifer came to indulge the desire of self-exaltation. He started thinking about things like rights and equality fairness. I mean, I can't really seem to distinguish between me and him. And this certainly doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem equal. What about me and my rights? I mean, after all, why should we be in submission to him? We too are perfect in beauty. We too are full of wisdom. We too make great decisions. We are wonderful creatures. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Then why? Why does there have to be status? Why is it you better than me? This is the thought I imagine he had in his mind. Why can't I be a part of this trinity? Or perhaps be in the place of Christ? Maybe we could rotate, take turns, come up with some compromise. Patriarchs and Prophets 37 says this, The exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was represented as an injustice. Do you hear that word a lot today? An injustice to Lucifer, who, was, who, it was claimed, was also entitled to reverence and honor. Another big catchphrase today, injustice, entitlement, what you deserve, what I deserve, what we deserve, our rights. If this prince of angels could but attain to his true exalted position, great good would accure to the entire host of heaven. For it was his object to secure freedom for all. This was a reformation. And here was its leader. And I am seeking, if you just follow me and my train of thought, if we do this together, we can reform this thing called heaven and we can find freedom for all. Kind of thought we, we were free. You're not. You're oppressed. I thought we had purpose. You don't. If you can't be on top, you can't be anybody. But I thought, quit thinking. You're a nobody. You have no rights. You're, this is injustice. This is, this is, you don't have freedom. You're being marginalized. And we need to stand for our rights. This was the good and noble position that Lucifer was taking. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe we have been marginalized a little bit. Maybe there has been some injustice. Maybe we do need to be recognized. Maybe if we got in, involved, instead of it being this small trinity, maybe if we all had the same position and the same authority, maybe we could accomplish more, better, faster, together. Maybe he's on to something. While claiming for himself perfect loyalty to God. Now let me get this straight. We're not in rebellion. Well, it sort of looks like we're not. He urged that changes in the order and laws of heaven were necessary for the stability of the divine government. 
This is for our good. Don't you see it? Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to. Yeah. So if, if we don't make this change, though, the government's going to be in big trouble. The effectiveness is going to be, exactly, you're starting to see things my way. Lucifer caused it to appear as his sole purpose to promote loyalty and to preserve harmony and peace. You know, I don't know if you've been out there talking to some of the other angels, but they're a little bit bothered. Jesus, I, you know, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but they feel like they've been marginalized, that they're not be getting their fair due and their voice and, and so on. And, and far be it from me, but I, I just, I hear things and I thought you'd want to know, but I'm trying to preserve peace and harmony. I, I want to be loyal to you, certainly not in rebellion, while working to excite opposition to the law of God and to instill his own discontent into the minds of the angels under him. You're really not free. You're oppressed. You're marginalized. We need to fight for our rights, for equality. Isaiah 14, 12 says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I also will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like, equal, if you will, the Most High. Yes, Lucifer had an eye problem. But at the foundation, Lucifer questioned God's authority. What makes you so special? And interestingly, rebellion always has a compelling pretext, if you will. A few more quotes. This one's from Story of Redemption. Beginning page 14, he, Lucifer, told them that henceforth all the sweet liberty the angels had enjoyed was at an end. For had not a ruler been appointed over them to whom they from henceforth must yield servile honor? I mean, this sounds terrible. He stated to them that he had called them together to assure them that he no longer would submit to this invasion of his rights and theirs, that never would he again bow down to Christ. The preference shown to Christ, he declared an act of injustice, both to himself and to all the heavenly hosts, and announced that he would no longer submit to this invasion of his rights and theirs. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 40. The pretext, Reformation, we're not in rebellion. We're only after our rights for liberty, for justice. That was the pretext. Sounded pretty good. Sounded noble certainly made its way all around social media with little sound bites and clips and quotes. And there was contention among the angels. Lucifer and his sympathizers were striving to reform the government of God. So they weren't being rebellious. They were reforming it. And so you have right there the entire great controversy in a nutshell. Lucifer had a problem with the son, Christ. And the issue in the great controversy is about the authority of the Son of God. Lucifer looked at him and said, I'm not bowing down to him. I'm just as good as he is. So I'm going to lift up myself under the pretext of fighting for the liberty of the angels against the tyrannical man called the Son of God. Have you noticed why they were unhappy? It says they were discontented and unhappy because they could not look into his unsearchable wisdom and ascertain his purposes in exalting his son and endowing him with such unlimited power and command. They couldn't see. They didn't have the wisdom. They didn't have the capacity. 
They couldn't understand fully the reasons behind it. And sometimes when it comes to us and our people in authority over us, we can't see either. We don't have all the information. We don't have access or whatever it is. And we don't understand, but we can think we understand. And we can form a pretext. And we can rouse up a rebellion. But they didn't understand. And who can understand the unsearchable wisdom of God? They forgot Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the, the wisdom and knowledge of God. We sang about that this morning. God is so much bigger and higher and above us and our thinking. There's thoughts or, or texts about that too. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. They are higher. They're bigger. How unsearchable, going back to this verse in Romans eleven thirty three. how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He's God. We're but a dust. We're nothing in comparison to God. Our very life and being is dependent upon God. But sometimes, Lord, forgive us, we like to think that we need to correct God and his way of doing things because we don't understand. Far be it from us to ever understand some of the ways of God. That's what makes him God. So it says here in Story of Redemption, page 15, they rebelled against, and there's the word again, the authority of the Son of God. So they're cast out. We read about it in Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Yet even then, guess who they blame? Patriarchs and prophets, 42, the discord which his own course had caused in heaven. Satan charged upon the government of God. It's your fault, God. You didn't do anything about it. I told you there was this uprising. I told you people were upset. You just ignored the issue. You didn't change things. You didn't reform. Your fault. Look what you've done. Innocent angels frustrated at the outcome. And I tried to warn you from the beginning. If you didn't do anything, this would happen. Yes, you didn't do anything, and it's your fault. Scary part about rebellion, and if I could add a word there, genuine rebellion, is that it's incurable. Now, wait a minute. I thought whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's true. So how is genuine rebellion incurable? And what is incurable? I mean, if a doctor pulls you into his doctor's office and you sit down and he says, I have terrible news for you, and he starts to explain, maybe he puts on the x-ray, whatever it is, and then he tells you these words, it's incurable. It's inoperable. There's nothing we can do. We don't know anything that will help. I'm sorry. I mean, that's devastating news. Incurable? Another quotation from Story of Redemption. In the battle, every angel would choose his own side and be manifested to all. It would not have been safe to suffer any who united with Satan in his rebellion to continue to occupy heaven. They had learned the lesson of genuine rebellion, there it is, against the unchangeable law of God, and this is incurable. Genuine rebellion, incurable. And you say, how did Lucifer get there? Well, it began with a question, a doubt, a rejection of rightful, godful, godly authority in his life. He had to justify his feelings. He came up with a compelling pretext. He brought a group together to launch this reformation, to right the wrongs of the government of God. And they believed it so wholeheartedly that they believed that they were right and God was wrong. They came to the point that they were willing to die for their misguided cause. You see, when the seed of rebellion takes root and grows to its logical conclusion, it's incurable. Genuine rebellion is equivalent to the unpardonable sin 
because you have turned God into the enemy that you would rather die than submit to. I mean, if you're going to rebel against God, the God of the universe, if this is a genuine rebellion, then who will save you? That's the unpardonable sin, isn't it? You have rejected, you have pushed away the Holy Spirit. You pushed God away. You said, get out, leave me alone. What other name in heaven and earth will save you then? An example, in fact, we have many examples of this, but number 16 is one example of how genuine rebellion is incurable. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read a few verses out of number 16. To give you some context, we have 12 spies that return from Canaan, but we have the bad report of the 10. And so because of this bad report, the people refuse to go in. Now, there's Caleb and Joshua, and they give a favorable report. And in essence, they say, we can do this. God has promised this. Let's have faith. Let's move forward. And the people respond, you remember? Stone them. Wow. That's pretty harsh. God becomes frustrated at this point. He decides, I'll just annihilate the whole lot of them. And Moses, I'll start over with you. It's the second time he offers that deal to Moses. And Moses is now interceding and pleading with God. He says, no, the Egyptians and everyone's watching. And and what will they say about you and your character and so on? And so God says, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll send them out in the wilderness. A year for every day that the spies were checking out the land. And so for 40 years, they're going to wander in the wilderness. And everybody that griped and complained, they're not going in. Only Caleb and Joshua. And how do the people now respond that are in rebellion, if you will, We're in chapter 16 of Numbers, verse 1. Now Korah, he's the leader. He's mentioned first. He's a Levite, leader of the church, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on, the the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So we have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram took men, and verse 2, they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. 250 people? No, leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. This is the who's who of the children of Israel now have gathered together and they're raising up against Moses. Verse 3, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Who gives you authority? Moses and Aaron. Who do you think you are? You're saying you're better than us, aren't you? We're here for equality, and we've got a few of our buddies with us. So Moses heard it, and he fell, verse 4, on his face in prayer to the Lord. But then he raises up. The Lord gives him confidence here. And he spoke to Korah and all his assembly saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who who is his and who is holy. We're going to have a a bit of a showdown. Skip down to verse 13. They start to rail him again. You have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. That you should keep acting like prince over us. Talk about questioning his authority. Verse 14, moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. And so down in verse 19, it's Korah that gathers all the congregation. Why? Because Korah is going to be justified, so he thinks. They're going to show once and for all who's in charge here, and it's not Moses and it's not Aaron. Now, you know the story. Verse 31, the ground split apart under them. 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. Anybody ever seen that happen? I haven't. I mean, the ground just literally opening up. And then it says the earth closed over them. Crunch. And then verse 35, and fire came down from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And here's the part that gets me. You would think the people of God would say, have mercy, have mercy. We have done wrong. Forgive us. Let's rent our clothes. Let's put ashes on our head. Let's get into a mode of repentance here. But if we read in verse 41, on the next day, all, how many is all? All. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Case in point, genuine rebellion is the equivalent of the unpardonable sin because you have turned God into the enemy that you would rather die than submit to. And that's a sad place to be. Dr. Nedley was here last year and he spoke about the Ten Commandments. I don't know how many of you went to listen to that. I, I don't remember if we watched this one live or if we watched it after the fact. But he gave a one-word principle for each of the Ten Commandments that I thought was very interesting, trying to distill it down to the, the principle of each commandment. And so on the first commandment, no other gods before me, his one-word principle was priorities. The second, no graven image, uh, the one-word principle he came up with was genuine. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. His one-word principle, reverence, remember the Sabbath day. He felt that was holy or set apart, sanctified. Honor your father and your mother. Interestingly, he came up with the word authority. We're going to come back to that. You shall not murder. The, the word is life. Shall not commit adultery. The word is exclusivity. Thou shalt not steal. The one word principle is ownership. Thou shalt not lie. The principle is honesty. Shall not covet. That is satisfied. What does it mean to be satisfied? And so I was listening to all of this, but then he talked and said something about authority that I thought was interesting. Honor your father and your mother. Now, this doesn't mean that parents are of more value than their children. I mean, think about it. When the family is threatened, a good parent will often lay down their life for their children. Why? Because they feel their children are more value than they are. But does that mean the child is the authoritarian in the household? I mean, there's a marked difference, right? But his point was, if you take the Ten Commandments, this one-fifth commandment goes against the morality of society. Above. If you take society, society has placed something above God's Ten Commandments, and what is it? The word is equality. If a person is perceiving inequality, they view that as the highest form of immorality. Have you noticed that in the news? But if you look throughout the Ten Commandments, go home today and study them over, you will not find any mention of equality. You would think that if this was a founding principle of, of God, it would be right here in the heart of the Ten Commandments. But it's not there, and I think for good reason. This whole problem that started in this world started out because an angel thought he should have equality with God. And he stirred up other angels. If I'm not equal, then you guys are being denigrated. And guys, need, we need to stick up for me and we'll be better off and we can get our freedom and so on and so forth. And so he stirred the pot. He stirred this issue. My role should be identical to Christ. This is unfair. And so here in the fifth commandment, God places a distinction. He said, honor your father and your mother. 
He recognized that the roles of children and offspring are not identical to the roles of the parents. And it has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with roles. God gave us different roles. And then he shared various statistics from Harvard and other places that when we are content in our role, we are happy. But as soon as we become discontented in our role, we are very unhappy. We don't live as long. If we're in contention with our parents, we don't live as long. He shared all these statistics that I thought were very interesting. And it's right here. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. If we're honoring our parents, if we're honoring those roles, does that mean you always agree with your parents? Not necessarily, but you honor them. You honor their role. It's God-given. And then we have the example of Jesus. But before that, you go back to Israel. Did everybody have access to have the role of the priest? No, only the tribe of Levi. But that was okay because happiness is best obtained by fulfilling our God-given roles. It's not about who's better or who's equipped with this or with that. He gives liberally to everyone as he wills, and then we simply follow what he has given us in being faithful. And then, of course, the example of Jesus. Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped, if you will, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or we could translate it, he emptied himself. And then the challenge that goes with this verse is, let this mind be in you. Here's an interesting verse. There's some other roles that we're supposed to be subject to or forms of authority. Another one is government. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. How do you feel about that? Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, who was the governing body at the time this was written? What book is this written in? Romans. So Rome. Was Rome an ideal government? Not at all. It was cruel, it was heartless, it was unjust. King Herod ordered the killing of baby boys in Bethlehem. Crucifixion was the norm in the Roman Empire. This was the same government that would destroy the temple in AD 70. No, Rome was not your ideal government to pattern after. But Paul says we must submit to governing authorities. In fact, he goes on further in this same chapter in a few verses to call government God's ministers. God's ministers? Now, granted, we have examples of Daniel, the three Hebrews, even Paul, that, goes, that go against the governing authorities. And when is that? Well, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's a verse we often could cite for that, Acts 5.29. And how do we know what God is telling us? By going to the Bible. I mean, after all, it's his word to the law and the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's how much light? No light. But except for instances that are going against God's word, we submit. These taxes are too high. We submit. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be going here. We shouldn't be going there. But no, we have to submit. It doesn't mean we can't be part of a solution, but it certainly means at the end of the day, until the law is changed, we submit. How about the church? Is there authority in the church? Remember Acts 15? There was a big disagreement over or in the church dealing with not just religion and doctrine, but also policy, if I can use that word. I mean, can you, in fact, save somebody unless they are circumcised? And it says in the verse that they were no, this was no small dissension. So they'd gathered together, 
for a general conference session, if you will. They are speaking about Scripture. So we have the study of the Bible, and then we also see the study of the Spirit of Prophecy because Peter stands up and he says, I was shown. And so you have Scripture, you have the Spirit of Prophecy, you have their own experience. They come to a conclusion, a consensus, and they say, okay, we're not going to require this. The church together, the body at Jerusalem, at the first general conference session, if you will, made a decision together in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Notice the Jerusalem Council did not establish two different standards based on culture. One for Jewish believers and another for Gentiles. The decision of the council pertained to all Christians everywhere, both Jews and Gentile believers in Christ alike. And because of that, the result was a unified church worldwide. So again, the world church reaches a conclusion. But then, what do we do when somebody decides to go outside of that decision? We have an example of that. We can turn to Galatians 2, verse 11 to 13. It says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I, is Paul, I withstood him to his face. What does that mean to withstand somebody? I called him out because he was to be blamed. And he could have barked back, except he knows that he's guilty. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for certain men came from James and he would eat with the Gentiles. And that's fine. When they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, those are Jews, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. And so he's all being fine and everything and eating with them, and then Jews come and all of a sudden he just kind of slips up and, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. And he says, no, we settled that. Acts chapter 15, Jerusalem council, we settled that. You're being the hypocrite. And I called him out to his face, it says. He's held accountable. Why? Because the church, when it gathers together, has authority. Matthew 18 is another example. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's step one. We cite this one often. He didn't follow Matthew 18. He told the whole church about it. He never came to me. That's what we're talking about. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Praise the Lord. He changed his ways. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more. This is step two. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. The idea is to win back our brother. Whatever he's doing, his wayward activity is not okay. And we as the church, we can't just have a blind eye to it. We have to address it. And so one goes and approaches. Doesn't work. So he brings a few more and they approach and we say, hey, we're concerned for you. We don't want you to follow this path. We feel like we know where you'll end up if you continue on this path because of what the Bible says about this activity and so on. That's typically where we stop reading. But there's a third step. And if he refuses to hear, tell it to who? The church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Like a heathen? Why? Because we need to make every effort to win them back. That's what we do with heathens and outsiders. We reach out to them. We make special effort for them. It is our goal to bring them back into the fold. But we as a church have to say, we cannot support you in this activity. And the whole hope here is not to get rid of them. He's an embarrassment. She's an embarrassment. Push them off to the side. We disfellowship them. The point here is to try to get their attention. What you're doing is not okay. And because we love you, because we care for you, because we want to get your attention. And at times, people, they, they wake up and they say, have mercy, the whole church is in agreement that this is wrong. This can't be wrong. And the Holy Spirit starts to work on their heart. 
and they start to realize, I have made a grave misstep, and there's opportunity for reconciliation and bringing them back into the body, and then we're, we're good. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is language of legally binding decisions. Here is the responsibility of binding and loosing, and it's committed to the church. Now, granted, heaven will only ratify these decisions if made by the principles of heaven, but here they are, given to us. The church is to prayerfully follow them, recognizing that we are dealing with a person's eternal life, and we want to win them back. So how about today? Does the church have authority today? I mean, we have to be careful here, right? Because our minds can just race back to abuses of power. One in particular that comes to my mind, the dark ages. But is that a correct understanding and usage of church authority? Acts the Apostles 163 and 164, God has invested his church with special authority and power, which no one can be justified in disregarding and despising, for he who does this despises the voice of God. That's pretty heavy stuff. Here's another one, Testimonies, Volume 9, 260. When in a general conference the judgment of the brethren assembled from all parts of the field is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be stubbornly maintained, but surrendered. Never, how often is never, never should a laborer regard as a virtue the persistent maintenance of his position of independence contrary to the decision of the general body. This is referring, by the way, to a general conference session. This is not referring to the body up in Washington, the general conference. But there are statements that I come across, verifiable, that say things like, we will not abide by a vote that we disagree with. Really? Is that how this works? And I've heard others say, ah, but Ellen White, she herself didn't always follow that. She went against the votes of the general conference at times. And I think they're talking about uh, this next statement. It says, at times when a small group of men entrusted with general management of the work have in the name of the general conference. So what are we talking about? A small group of men entrusted with the work. Are we talking about representatives from the world field? We're not. We're still trying to figure out and, and set up, if you will, our church structure. So when a small group in the name of the general conference sought to carry out unwise plans and to restrict God's work, I have said that I could no longer regard the voice of the general conference represented by these few men as the voice of God. But is she talking about a general conference session? She's not. It's very clear she's not. She's talking about a few people that are power hungry, that are not letting it be voiced and, and have the back and forth discussion. And so they're just going to decide. But this is not saying that the decision of the general conference composed of an assembly of duly appointed representative men from all parts of the field should not be respected. God has ordained that the representatives of his church from all parts of the earth, when assembled in a general conference, shall have, what's the word? Authority. It's not you and your opinion. It's not me and my opinion. As much as we may base it on scripture and have our verses and our texts and all the rest, is when we all come together shall have authority. There that some are in danger of committing is in giving to the mind and judgment of one man or of a small group of men the full measure of authority and influence that God has vested in his church. In the judgment and voice of the general conference assembled to plan for the prosperity and advancement of his work. And then I want to share with you a quote that I believe is being fulfilled right now. And to me, it's a very sobering quote. Maybe you're quoted out. I'm sorry. But it says this, Satan well knows 
that success can only attend order and harmonious action. He well knows that everything connected with heaven is in perfect order. That subjection and thorough discipline mark the movements of the angelic host. It is his, Satan's studied effort to lead professed Christians just as far from heaven's arrangement as he can. Therefore, he deceives even the professed people of God and makes them believe that order and discipline are enemies to spirituality. That the only safety for them is to let each pursue his own course. All the efforts made to establish order are considered dangerous and a restriction of rightful liberty and hence are feared as popery. Have you seen that word floating around the internet? These deceived souls consider it a virtue to boast of their freedom, to think and act independently. They will not take any man's say so. They are amiable to no man, she writes. I was shown that it is Satan's special work to lead men to feel that it is in God's order for them to strike out for themselves and choose their own course independent of their brethren, end quote. Folks, this is startling. And we go online and we hear statements about kingly power and popery and who is choosing not to accept this vote and that vote and, and the ruling that they're going to say and their statements and so on. I've heard statements like, let it be understood to all who like it and to all who don't, we will not be detoured. Some have said this, and this is a quote as well, we don't care what action, we don't care what body, we do not care, we have a mandate from God. Friends, I don't know about you, but we need to pray. We need to pray for God's church. We need to pray for those in leadership. We need to pray for our conference president, Elder Louie. We need to pray for our union president, Ron Smith. We need to pray for our North American Division President, Dan Jackson, our General Conference President, Ted Wilson. Friends, we live in monumentous times. This is not business as usual. And God has placed them in positions of authority, and so we respect that authority. What did David say, King David? How could I do such a wicked thing and raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? God has a way of dealing with those types of situations. But how we relate to authority is crucial. And it's Satan's special work to lead men to feel that they are doing in accordance to God's order, but it's not. And friends, we can't trust our feelings. We must only trust in the plain, thus saith the Lord. Our feelings are swayed constantly by culture, by media, by selfishness, by wrong. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's my heart. No, our feelings are not a sound guide, but the authority of God's word, that's a sound guide. I have here a $5 bill, or what remains of one. It's just a piece. It's charred all the way around the edges, and it's in this little Ziploc. And when we were at my grandma's house, we were going through her things, and already gone through a lot of things, but we found this. Elizabeth and I actually found this. There was a couple other bills besides this one. We were curious what this was. So I went and I asked my dad, I said, Dad, do you know anything about these bills that are burnt and pieces of ash in here? And he says, oh yeah. Well, what is it? He says, those were found weeks later after the plane crash that killed my father. They found a wallet that was charred, but inside they recovered a few things and, and these were one of them. So this was in my dad's back pocket, he said to me, when the plane went down. Now friends, the plane went down because the pilot was not trained to fly with instruments, and it was a foggy day there at PUC. And so they took off, and trusting his feelings, if you will, he felt like he was going in this direction. But for any pilots in the room, you might 
know or realize that the plane can be in a slight bank, but the gravity is maintained in that slight bank. And so you feel your experience as the pilot and as the passenger is not that we're turning, but we're going straight. And you might bet your life on it until you look at that little gauge that shows the wings and the the, the sky on the top end and the dark on the bottom end. And if you're not paying attention to those little wings, that plane is just going to be slowly turning all the way around until you come right back and they smashed into the side of the mountain. My fear is, as a church, if we're not careful, we're going to trust our feelings. We're going to say, I feel like I'm in, in right relationship. I feel like this is the right thing. I feel like equality is the best thing. I feel, I feel, I feel. But if we're unwilling to pay any attention to the authorities in front of us, meaning the gauges, the instruments, God's word, spirit of prophecy, the counsel given to us for this time. If we ignore those things, I fear there'll be a tragic result. Revelation 14, first angel's message, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, to everyone. And this is the last message. Fear God, fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Fear him. Recognize him as the ultimate authority. Recognize him as knowing far more than you and I know. Recognize that his ways are above my ways. Recognize that if it is God's will for certain things to happen, it will go through the process and it will be done God's way, not my rebellious push, push, pushing way. But I see people constantly saying, God's no longer authority in my life. Spirit of prophecy is no longer an authority in my life. Religion, I hate religion, I hate rules, I hate doctrine. That's not an authority in my life. And a lot of it's under some pretext of reformation. Oh, we're not rebelling. We just want rights, we want liberty, we want to get rid of all the injustices of the world. Friends, that's not going to happen until Jesus comes. Are there some things we can get behind? Yes, there are. Do we want people to be treated fairly? Yes, we do. Do we want equality in certain capacities? Of course. But that's not the end game. The end game is, does God have authority in my life, period? When was it ever about our rights in the first place anyway? When was it ever about entitlement? When was it ever about position? I mean, at the end of the day, when was it ever really about us? Even the judgment is about God. Is he fair? Is he just? Is he true? Can he be trusted? Yes, I have skin in that game, but at the end of the day, it's about him. Is he who he claims to be or not? If anyone, Jesus could have said, do you know who I am? Do you know my rightful position? Do you know who created the heavens and the earth? Don't you dare spit in my face again. But instead he said, my food is to do the will of my father, to submit to his will, to his plan, to his authority. So today my question is simple. Who has authority in your life? Because God's final end time message, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. If you want equality, there's equality. No matter what our role, position, or status, we're each equal under the law, meaning we will be judged by it. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And so who's our example? Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. And then what did he do next? He humbled himself and became obedient. To the point of death, even the death of the cross. The creator of the universe humbled himself, submitted to the authority of the Father, and died in our place. Not my will, but yours be done. And we're challenged in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you. Let it be in me. So I urge you, I implore you, I beg you, 
submit to the authority of Jesus in your life. How do we do that? Well, by submitting to the Bible. This is his word, his directives, his will, his authority, his leading. It's all right here. Some paint it as arbitrary, as restrictive, as a burden. But the reality of the matter is those that make God first and last and best are the happiest people in the world. He has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Will you allow Jesus to lead in your home? Will you allow Jesus to lead in your church? Will you allow Jesus to lead in you? Dear Heavenly Father, throughout Scripture we see time and again your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness. There is no reason that we have that we can even think of or imagine why we wouldn't want to be led by you. You always have our best interest at heart. Lord, forgive us when we try and take on more than we ought to. Forgive us for being critical of those that you have placed in leadership. Lord, help us to make it a matter of prayer, these individuals, these leaders, your church around the world, and ultimately to allow you to be God, to allow you to lead and guide and direct, and just help us to be faithful, to do whatever you call and ask us to do is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.